When I was in publishing, I needed to hire a marketing manager, and so I narrowed it down to a finalist candidate, and uh, her name was Janice, and I brought her in and introduced her to the three people she would be supervising. And so they all got a chance to meet her without me in the room and interview her, and when they were done, they said, she's great, go ahead and hire her. But within that very first month that Janice started, things became tense on the team between her and uh, a woman named Gail. First of all, Janice asked Gail for some information that, you know, about how things worked, and Gail kind of put her off and delayed getting her the information. And then she had to ask again, and then she got her the information, but it, she didn't give her all of the information. And then I noticed that in staff meetings, Gail made a few little comments that had some barb in it toward Janice. And then I saw an eye roll, and I was like, wait, 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 we're not having this on our team. So I called the two of them into my office, and I said, we really need to understand what's going on here and try to work on it together. So I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to use a technique called speaker-listener, and one of you is going to have this book, and when you have the book, it's your turn to talk, and the other person is just going to paraphrase back uh, what you are saying so that you know that they heard you. Okay? So we started with Gail, and here was Gail. She said, you know, I feel like you don't trust me. I feel like I've been here a while and I know what I'm doing, but you don't appreciate that. So we worked with that for a while and then we handed the book over to Janice and Janice said, I feel like you don't respect me. I feel like every time I try to step out and do the job I've been hired to do to lead, then you undermine me in some way. And I thought right there, that is the problem in the relationship between leaders and followers. One side saying, you, you don't trust me. And the other side saying, you don't respect me. And the relationship is breaking down. And when it breaks down, it spreads to the entire team. It makes the entire workplace unworkable. Some of you are in a workplace right now where you understand exactly what I'm describing. It happens in churches too. When Rez had her difficult days back in the 90s or we had some splits, part of the reason, a big contributing factor, was that the trust and the respect between the leaders and the followers had broken down. And it affects everybody. Everybody suffers when that's the case. In fact, I would go so far as to say that in our country right now, we have a national crisis around this issue right here. It used to be when you would survey people, hey, well, how do you feel about Congress? Americans would say, Congress is terrible. Congress doesn't get anything done right? But when you ask them, and how do you feel about your congressional rep, they would go, oh, well, my rep's great. Because they knew their rep, they would see him or her passing in the 4th of July parade. Or maybe the rep's office helped them out with a passport problem. Or maybe the rep got the money for the new highway bridge. But now, even that is gone. As of two months ago, Washington News, uh, Washington Post and ABC News did a poll, and for the first time in the 25 years they've been asking this question, over half of the people surveyed said, I disapprove of how my rep is handling his or her job. And so we've gotten this complete breakdown between leaders and followers. And you go, what is the solution to that? How do we begin to turn that around? Because it's a very pressing problem, no matter where it is that you're called to lead or to follow. I don't know if there's many better places we could go than the first letter of Peter, because Peter when he was a follower, made a lot of mistakes. He's bullheaded. He's impetuous. He's running over people, right? He's making really bad suggestions. But 
Jesus sees the leadership gift and potential in him, and he makes him the leader of the Christian movement. And even as a leader, Peter makes some mistakes. And now, at the very end of his life, having gone through so much leadership, so much followership, having learned so many lessons the hard way, he writes this letter and says, here's what I've learned about what it takes for leaders and followers to rebuild trust, to work together to get things done. Let's look at that together. If you would, turn to 1 Peter 5. And Peter first talks to the leaders, then he talks to the followers, then he talks to everybody. Let's look at all of that. First, he talks to the leaders, starting in verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Now, what Peter has just done is, in a masterstroke of a few sentences, laid out the three main ways that leaders go wrong, that leadership goes wrong. It's brilliant. Let's look at that just a little more closely if we can. The first thing Peter says there in verse 2 is, don't lead because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. He's saying, don't do it with this kind of grudging spirit. If you're called to lead, don't lead in this kind of bitter and resentful way where you're making very clear to everybody just how hard it is you work and how much you have to put up with and, wow, how you stayed late on a Friday night or came in on a Saturday. That's not helpful to people. If you're going to lead, you've got to lead with a willing spirit, okay? Not a grudging one. Then he goes on and says, and by the way, friends, this, these leadership lessons, I, if you're in a leadership role in your workplace, and I know so many of you are, this is gold. Take this in. If you're a parent, this applies to you. Take this in. If you're kind of the leader in your family system or your friendship circle, take this in. If you're a leader in a ministry here at church, so important. So the first thing is, don't have that grudging spirit. Second, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. The, The dishonest gain here it's not really so much corrupt, but it's more greedy. It's like you're doing the leadership for what you can get out of it. Maybe it's the money or the perks, or in church work, maybe it's the attention, right, and the influence. And so that's what it's about for you. Do you know what? If you go into leadership with the thought, I wonder, what, I, what can I get out of it? You will be relentlessly disappointed because it'll never be equal to what you're putting into it. That's just the way leadership works. Think about it. If you went into parenting with the thought, what do I get out of it? You would never do it. Never. Like, here, here, let me tell you how parenting works. Child gets sick and throws up in the middle of the night. You're getting up as the parent. You're cleaning them up. You're changing all the sheets. You're going to make three or 4,000 lunches for that child. Okay? You're going to make financial sacrifices for that child. You're going to make career sacrifices for that child. There's going to be times where you wake up in the middle of the night and you are worrying and praying about that child. And in exchange for all of that, on Mother's Day or Father's Day, you get one sloppily made breakfast and a few hugs. The point is your kids will never, until they're adults, get just what it is you are sacrificing for their sake. They can't. 
So you've got to go into it as the parent, as the leader, and say, I'm not here for what I'm getting out of it. I'm here for what I'm putting into it. I'm coming in with a willing spirit. I'm not coming into it with a greedy spirit. And last, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Not a kind of a grandstanding way like, I'm the leader. You see that in church circles, right? The person who subtly reminds you they're the holy person and they have the collar and that. It's just, it's annoying, right? One of the things I love when I drive in here on Sunday mornings is that Stuart, our bishop, who, who could say I need a reserve spot next to the building, he actually parks over at Acme Screw and walks so that a space is opened up here closer to the building for uh, uh, one of our members or visitors. That's the spirit. That's what Peter's modeling in verse 1. Peter could say, to the elders among you, I appeal as the chief apostle. I appeal to you as the one whom Jesus is building his church on. I appeal to you as the rock. You should do what I say. He drops all of that. And he just says, you know what? I'm just an elder just like you. We're in the same kind of caring work together. And so I just appeal to you. He drops the pretense and the grandstanding. About 10 years ago, Karen and I were leading a conflict and communication class for married couples here at Res. And so it was really intended for our premarital couples, but it was also taken by a lot of our younger married couples, first five years of marriage or so, help them work on some of those issues. And we were in our first session at our house, and we were about five minutes into it, and who walks in but Rudy and Mildred Hines. At this point, they're in their late 70s. And I go, you guys, like, how many years have you been married? I forget the answer. It was like 46 years or something. I'm like, I think you're going to make it. You know? But they came in. They sat down on the sofa. They took out their notebooks and wrote notes, as Karen and I, who'd been married half as long, are, are telling them these things. And then they sit and do the exercises with each other. And I thought, oh, yeah, that is humility. That's a spirit that says it doesn't matter the fact that, you know, he... I've been this brilliant church history professor and I'm ordained and I'm an elder here and I'm twice your age. I'm coming to serve. I'm coming to learn. I'm coming alongside you. Peter says, if you're a leader, that's what the way you should lead. You should lead with, without any grudging, without any greed, without any grandstanding. And think what will happen in the relationship with the people who follow you if that's clear in your own heart. All right, well, now that Peter's instructed the leaders, he turns and has some counsel for the followers, and you'll see that in verse 5. Peter says, in the same way, in other words, with the same kind of spirit, you who are younger, meaning all the followers now, submit yourselves to your elders. Submit yourselves. I suppose there are not two more, un, more unpopular words in the entire Bible than those words right there. Submit yourselves. Nobody liked it when Peter said it the first time, and we hate it here in our culture today. And you might rightly ask, and I think this is a worthy question, so I want to spend some time with it. Isn't the whole idea, submit yourselves, a, a blank check to the unethical leader? Isn't that really just opening the door for the kind of leadership, a scandal and abuse that we so often see? Isn't that what makes it possible to have, say, these Catholic priest scandals or, or these megachurch Protestant pastors who are taking church funds to promote their book? Isn't submission what, what is, gives people the chance to do that? So let me talk about submission. Submission does not mean subservience. Subservience. 
It's not the same. Submission is not the same as subservience. It doesn't mean you write the person a blank check, and it doesn't mean you turn off your mind. You will disagree with leaders. In fact, if you're at a church for more than two or three weeks, you will disagree with Stuart or me or Stephen or someone here. That's the way it works. What submission does say is how do you go about that disagreement? And I thought about this from kind of the years of pastoring that I've done, and I just want to offer some thoughts on that. I do not offer these with a sense that they carry the same weight as Peter's apostolic instruction, but I do commend them to you for your consideration. You're disagreeing with the person who's your boss, your pastor, whatever, and you're under their authority. How do you handle it? The first question I think you should ask yourself is, am I coming with the right spirit? Am I coming with the right spirit? There was a guy here at Res one time, and in his former company, the boss had done a number of things that were really unethical and possibly even criminal. And he was so distressed by this, the boss hadn't done anything directly to him, but just being under the authority of this person was so distressing that finally he felt he had no option but to leave. And he did. And he eventually came to res, and his entire life had become one of documenting and replaying all of the wrongs of this boss. He couldn't let it go, and it was consuming him with rage and bitterness. And finally, Canon Stephen and I sat down with him, and, and we said, we just plead with you, for the sake of your own soul, pastorally, would you forgive this person from the heart and would you let it go and move on with your life? He couldn't do it. His eyes were burning with rage and he began to just spew about this person. And finally, Stephen just looked at him and so gently and quietly said to him, this is what hate looks like. See, friends, it's not enough for us to come with the right evidence. We've got to come with the right spirit. And the right spirit is the one that says, I don't like what you're doing. I decidedly disagree with you, but I respect you as a human being created by God. I respect that you carry a role that I'm not in and that maybe you have some pressures I can't understand. And when you come in that spirit, good things happen in the leader-follower relationship. Well, not only should you ask, am I coming with the right spirit? But you should ask yourself the second question, am I following the right process? Have I gone directly to this leader as Jesus tells me to do in Matthew 18? Just go to them and and challenge them with what is not good or right, what needs to be different? Or have I at the very least gone to the leaders above them who have responsibility for them and said, hey, I think this is a problem, I think you need to know about it. Or have I done what is just the the -the run-of-the-mill response that everybody seems to like first, which is I go to everybody else and I tell them. Even though you've never even heard from this person yet, you have no idea if there's other nuances, things that you don't know about. There's usually 17 sides to the story and you know one. So it's not enough to, to, to even come with the right spirit. You've got to follow the right process. And then the third question is, Am I minimizing the disruption or harm? I'm a follower. I'm under a leader. I disagree. The disagreement is growing. But am I doing it in the way that I I am minimizing the disruption or harm? You know, sometimes leaders just disagree. Paul and Barnabas did. 
and they ended up parting ways over it. But thank God they didn't have blogs back then to just blow it up and have the whole conflict go viral. They just went their separate ways and did their mission work. And because of that, late in his life, Paul writes in 2 Timothy, John Mark, whom I did not think we should take on that mission trip, I've kind of softened, I've mellowed a little bit. Would you get him for me? Because he could really be helpful now. You see what happens when you minimize the harm? You open the door for reconciliation and for relationship later on that, that you will never get if you pursue the scorched earth policy and you blog about it and you tell everybody else and you, you do everything you can to harm the other person. You see, friends, as followers, it's not easy, but if you and I come with the right spirit when we disagree, if we follow the right process, if we minimize harm, those, those, uh, those disagreements are not going to poison the well of whatever organization we're in, whatever family unit or church. They'll be healthy disagreements. They'll lead to greater good. Oh, I, you know, I'm passionate about this because if we had followed these guidelines as a church in the 90s, we would not have had splits, or the splits we would have had would have been mild and not so messy. And God would have been glorified, and the church built up. If we can just get this right. Now, now that Peter's talked to the leaders and the followers, he, he can't help himself. He wants to talk to everybody. And in the second half of verse 5, he says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. If we can get the right spirit, I'll tell you what will happen. You won't have leaders who are dominating, who are authoritarian, who are abusing their power and their privilege. You won't have leaders who are undermining and carping and resentful and bitter. I mean, we have created, friends, in our political system right now, a place called Washington, D.C., where it is almost impossible to lead. And everybody suffers. Oh, if we could clothe ourselves with humility to listen and respect. Oh, we need it. Now, this raises the acid question to me of this text. Everybody's like, I think humility is a great virtue. But when it comes to me in my case, and you're asking me to humble myself beneath this person, I don't like it because it feels like losing. It feels bad. Everything within me is going, I don't, I, I don't like humbling anymore. I don't like humility How do we develop that? And Peter gives us just unbelievable wisdom here as he moves on to verse 6, which is the climax of this whole section. He says, After everything else I've told you, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This is so important, this verse, this teaching, that I want to break it apart for you with two phrases and one picture. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. If I were trying to translate Peter there, I would say this. Consent to the current conditions. You don't like your boss. You don't like this pastor you're under. You don't like this ministry leader. You don't like this, you know, housing association leader or whatever. You can pray for change. Christianity is not passive. Paul says to slaves, if you get a chance to get out of being a slave, take it. But while you're in those conditions that you are praying to change and working hard to change, you can have the inner motion of the soul where you, instead of chafing against it, instead of kicking back against it, instead of being bitter about it and pushing back against it, you actually consent to it. 
You say, God, there is a God greater than this situation. You are a mighty God with a mighty hand stronger than that of my boss or superior or person who's over me right now. You are the mighty God, and you, in your sovereignty and power, have allowed this situation here for now in my life. And so I'm going to submit myself to you while I'm in this situation and trust myself to you. I'm going to consent to the current conditions. Now, what happens if you do not consent to the current conditions? You're going to be miserable. You're not going to follow well. It's going to start to ripple. What is that place you're in right now where you're chafing? Is God calling you this morning right now? Consent to the current conditions. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. And then Peter, in this amazing second half of the sentence, says, if you'll do that, then God will lift you up in due time. If you'll humble yourselves under his mighty hand, he'll lift you up in due time. In other words, trust the timing. Trust the timing. What I've seen so often is when I'm a follower and I'm in a position I don't like and I think I should be getting more opportunity or my vision should be moving forward, I'm always ahead of God's timing. (laughs) But what, what Peter says is it's in due time, meaning the right time meaning God's time. And God's time may not be as fast as your time. But can I help you with this? That if you push, if you accept the lie that the only way I'm going to get elevated is if I push myself forward here, then what might happen is you may not get it. But what would be worse is you do get it, and now you're a leader, but you don't have the character that would have come during that waiting period to lead in a healthy way. I saw this when I was working with some pastors on Leadership Journal, and I had a chance to meet some who, in very young ages, had tremendous speaking gifts, tremendous charisma, tremendous systematic gifts. They were just like these national and world-class leaders. They were really stunning that way. And because of that, they very quickly were brought up into positions of tremendous leadership with lots and lots of money and people and position and responsibility. And in some of those people, I have to say, with sadness, they didn't have the spiritual center of gravity to handle it. And you know what happens in that case? It's really ugly. It's not good for them. It's not good for their families. It's not good for the people they're leading. They can't handle it. Their gifts got them pushed up to a place that they weren't ready for spiritually. And so for many years, I've prayed this prayer. Lord, don't ever place me in a position that is beyond what I can handle spiritually. Please don't do that. I think that's what Jesus means when he teaches us, lead us not into temptation. Don't put me in a situation that I cannot handle, Lord. Have mercy on me. You know that I'm not the most spiritual person in the room, and I just need you to just kind of moderate my responsibility level to my maturity level. Please help me with that. And when that doesn't happen, it's such a train wreck. I I know a church where their youth pastor was part-time, and he was doing a good job, but he was married now and had a child, and so he went to his church and said, I would love to stay on with the youth here, But to be honest, I've just got to make more money to support a family. I I really need to go full-time if I'm going to be able to stay. And so the elders considered that and said, we really like you. We like what you're doing with our youth. Uh, We're not sure if we can get the money, but give us some time. So they went and they scraped together the money to be able to bring him on full-time, which was a sacrifice for them. 
And so they went back and said, we, we figured it out. We would love for you to stay, and we figured out how to pay you full time. We would just ask that in response for this, that you would commit to staying two or three years so there would be a measure of continuity and leadership for our young people. He said, yeah, I'm all about that. Six months later, a church in another state offered him an associate pastor position, more responsibility, more money, and all that, and he took it and left. And that church felt so burned, and they should have. You see how you're pushing yourself forward in that situation? You're not waiting for God's timing and due timing to raise you up. And I just have to believe he wasn't as good of an associate pastor as God wanted him to be. He missed the opportunity. Now, in contrast with that, you take Nelson Mandela, one of the most remarkable political leaders of our generation, our lifetime. You go, why was it that when he became the first democratically elected leader of South Africa, the first black leader of South Africa, he didn't have the black maid make his bed. He made it every day. Why did he lead like that? Why did he start a children's fund and put a third of his salary into that? Why did he insist that the nation of South Africa immediately start to pay for the full health care of every child under six and every pregnant mom? Why did he do that? Because for 27 years, he'd been in a concrete cell seven feet by eight feet, and he had learned humility. He had learned through his suffering to humble himself under God's mighty hand that in due time, God will raise him up. Oh, friends, we've got to take this in. There is a time when God will raise you up, but it's his time, not ours. Now, I want to leave a picture with you, and I'll close with this, that I hope will will make this even more clear for you. When I was in my early 20s, I was in publishing, and I really wanted to succeed in that. And so I went to a career workshop with a woman who had been in the highest levels of the field, the industry. Her resume was so impressive. And she was telling us, here's how career development works for you. And she said, there's this thing called the S-curve. And she said, here's how it works. When you start in a new job, you know nothing. Okay, And so you don't know anything. You don't have contacts. You don't have confidence. You don't have a skill set. And so you're down here. But over time, as you go to work and get some training and on the job and whatever, you start to improve. And your skills grow and your contacts grow and your confidence grows. And you're really developing professionally. But then, you know, every job only has so much that can be done in it. You start to tail off and you actually start to go down. See? But she said, at that point, instead of waiting and going down, down, down like this, you, what you do is you find the next job, and you go like this, and you start the next S-curve. So it just goes S, 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 like that. Now, there's a lot of wisdom in the S-curve, and if I were a career counselor, I would probably use this to help some people who are stuck in their jobs to take a risk and move to the next level of growth and development. But there is so much fear for most people in the S-curve. If I don't do this, I'm stuck. I'm going down. There is no God in heaven under whose mighty hand I am living my life in in his providence. I don't trust that he's going to raise me up, so I can't bear one more day going down like this, even if my team is depending on me and they need me and I have a unique and valuable contribution to make. That doesn't mean anything to me. I'm going to do this. 
And what Peter's calling to us, friends, in verse 6 is a different kind of curve. It's the you curve. He says, if you will start here, if you will humble yourself under God's mighty hand, trusting that there is a sovereign God who has your life in full control and will bring you up, then I'll tell you what will happen. In due time, God will lift you up. He did it with his son, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself, became nothing, took on the form of a servant, and humbled himself to the point of death, and God exalted him to the highest place. Where are you right now? You're pushing. You're not consenting to the current conditions. You're not trusting in God's timing because you don't have a full and robust confidence that there is a sovereign God who will take care of this part of the letter. I call to you and I appeal to you through the Apostle Peter, in in, in the voice of the Spirit, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that in due time, he may lift you up. Amen.